Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? All right, if you have a Bible, let's open it to Romans chapter 9. It's where we left off last week. We've been journeying through Romans for some time, and we're in the middle of Romans chapter 9, one of the deepest portions of all of the Bible. Our text this morning is one paragraph, verses 14 through 18, but I'm going to read a little bit more before that just to to give us a sense and remind us of the context of, of Paul's logic. So if you have a Bible, I would love for you to open your own copy of God's Word, have it there on your lap open for you to see. If you don't have one, you're welcome to use one of the Bibles. In fact, you're welcome to take that Bible as your as yours, our gift to you if you don't own a Bible. I think it would do you wonders for just for you to see God's Word in front of you, even though we'll have the Scripture on the screen. So before I read Romans 9, verses 6 through 18, and we zero in on verses 14 through 18, before I even do any of that, let me pray and ask the Lord to help us understand this, this weighty truth and text this morning. Pray with me. Pray for me. Father, we, we thank you. We, we're all like blind Bartimaeus that Springer read for us earlier. We need you to have mercy on us. We pray, Lord, that you would extend mercy, that you would open our eyes so that we can see beautiful things from your book. This Bible is true. It's inspired by you. It's breathed out by you. It's without error. It has nothing that is wrong. It's completely true. It's authoritative. It's your word to us. And your word does not return void. So, Lord, we humble ourselves under your word. We ask that you would help us to see more of your character and more of the goodness of the gospel and more of our need as we, as we stare at this text this morning. This is a difficult truth. This runs contrary to our natural inclinations, and we need your help. I pray for my friends in this room who do not know Jesus, that by your mercy, you would have compassion on them and open their eyes so that they can see the hope, their only hope, which is in Christ, and that they would turn to him and run to him. And I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room who already know you, that you would deepen our affection for Jesus, that you would humble us, that you would make us more bold and confident in your grace, and that would produce in us fruit. And on this first Sunday of September, as we come to the Lord's table, I pray that this little meal that we will take, this little piece of bread and this little cup of juice that symbolizes Jesus' work on the cross for us, His body and His blood, I pray that we would feast on the truth of the gospel as a church family this morning. Help us, Lord. We're distracted and we are self-absorbed and we confess all of those things and we need your Holy Spirit to blow through these dusty temples like a mighty rushing wind and do your work in us, I pray, and help me as I speak to these people that I love. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Remember the context of Romans. I know I'm doing this a lot as we work through this passage, but I think it, it's helpful for us. Paul's point in the first eight chapters of Romans is that basically all mankind is sinful. Jews, Gentiles, everybody stands in equal need before God. And we are unable, completely unable, to save ourselves. But the good news of the gospel is that God, in His kindness, has put forward God the Son. God the Father has put forward God the Son to be a wrath-absorbing sacrifice. The biblical word is propitiation. He's, he's put Jesus forward to absorb the wrath of God and satisfy it, extinguish it, and not only remove the wrath of God, but turn it into favor for those that will trust in Christ, for those that will put their hope in Him, their faith in Him. And that faith that a person puts in Jesus justifies them. It makes them right before God. And then God, as he says at the middle point of Romans chapter 8, God, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. He's saying that he will bring them all the way home. God will save his people. God has a people and he will save his people and they can count on his sovereign grace in their lives. And really the point of Romans 1 through 8 up to this point is that God has saved the people and he is the one who does the saving because sinners can't save themselves and he will guarantee that those sinners whom he has saved will make it all the way to eternity with him. That's the good news of the gospel in Romans chapter 8. But in Romans chapter 9, as we've been looking, the objection that Paul is handling is he's, he's writing to these first century Roman Christians who may be wondering, well, Paul, if you're saying that God can be trusted to save me and that his word to me can be trusted and relied upon and that he will keep me saved until the end by his sovereign grace, what about his Old Testament people, the Jews? Seems like maybe he has failed in saving those people that he promised all of these good things to. And Paul's point in Romans chapter 9 is that all of Old Testament Israel, just because they were ethnic Jews, doesn't mean that they were truly Israel. He's separating ethnic Israel from spiritual Israel and saying that there is a true Israel whom are the true inheritors of God's promises and they are true Israel because they have faith in Jesus. He's the one true obedient Jew who is the only one who can rightfully inherit all of the promises to Israel in the Old Testament. And so Jesus is the one true Israelite, the one faithful, obedient Jew, and in him all the promises of God are fulfilled. And now those who by God's grace are in him, Jesus, are true people of God, true Israelites, true Jews. And God has produced a people through Jesus and through those people's faith in Jesus. That's Paul's point in Romans chapter 9. His point is, is that God can be trusted because he's not failed. He has produced a people. And those people are in Christ. So with that, let's pick up in Romans chapter 9, verse 6. I'm going to start reading there, but we're really going to cover, we, we, we've covered 6 through 13 last few weeks, and we're really going to zero down in verses 14 through 18 this week. Paul is saying, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. 
Really, that's the point of Romans 9. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. We just mentioned that. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. In other words, true Israel are those who believe like Abraham believed. And they will inherit the promises to Abraham, not merely because of physical descent, but because they believe in Jesus. The point for us today is nobody gets to heaven just because they were born into a Christian family. We are in Christ, not because we grew up in church, but because we're trusting in Jesus. And this gives great hope to all of us, right? Verse 9, for this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. Listen to this, verse 11, which we spent a lot of time on last week. Though they were not yet born, these two twins, Jacob and Esau, in the womb. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So let's pause there before we get into the text that we're going to look at and just summarize. And this is a controversial truth. It cuts against much of our natural philosophical presuppositions as Americans. Paul is saying here, not only is there a true Israel, those who by faith trust in Christ, but he's saying now, how did that true Israel become true Israel? And he's saying it's not because of anything good in them, not because of anything they did, but because of God's purpose of election, because of God's sovereign choice. And he uses the example of how God saves a person by going all the way back to Genesis, by looking at these two twins in the womb who were conceived by the same father, same mother, before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad, and says that God has separated for himself one and not the other, and he has guaranteed that Jacob will trust in him. And Paul's point in bringing that Old Testament scene up is that that is how God makes true Israel, all of his people, by him not responding to anything good that exists prior in the person, but to his grace, which is unconditional. In other words, not responding to anything in the person. And so God's purpose, the point Paul is making up at this point, is that God is free to save whom he wants to save. Now, I believe this truth. I preach this truth. If you've been around Crosspoint for a while, you know this. I think this is biblical. But friends, let's just admit this is a hard truth for us to take in. Is it not? If you don't feel the tension here, your heart is, I, I, I want to talk to you afterwards, your heart's a little cold. This is a hard truth. And Paul then anticipates this objection. How can this be? Doesn't this seem unfair 
that God would save Jacob and not Esau, even though neither one of them had done anything good or bad, but simply because of his, his choice, not because of anything that they did, God would save one and the, not the other. And then Paul takes that and he applies it to how anybody becomes part of the people of God, which means our salvation as individuals. And here's what Paul says in verses 14 through 18. This is the text. He says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Verse 16, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, verse 18, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, let's admit that Paul, it, when we read verse 14, if we're reading this for the first time, we might think, okay, Paul at least is acquainted with our consternation here internally, and, and he's going to kind of let God off the hook here, and he's going to reason with us and say, oh, but that's, you know, that's not really what I meant when I was talking about Jacob and Esau, but it seems that Paul doubles down. Listen to what one respected scholar says about this text. I read a quote from him last week. His name is Douglas Moo. That is his last name, Moo with two O's. He says, These responses are not what we might expect. Paul does not attempt to show how God's choice of human beings for, salvations, for salvation fits with their own choosing of God and faith. Quite the contrary. Rather than compromising the apparent absolute and unqualified nature of God's election, he reasserts it in even stronger terms. And I think that's what Paul is doing in verse 16, where he says, So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So let's pause here before we break down this truth, and let's just, let's just say a few things. This truth is difficult to take in. Why is it so difficult? I think one is because we, we are by nature, even if we are believers and have been recreated, we're still struggling with our sanctification. We still don't see things clearly as we should. So we are still, to varying degrees, self-centered people. The French philosopher Voltaire said that in the beginning, God created man in his own image, and since then, man has been trying to return the favor. Let that sink in. In other words, we're trying to create God in our image. We want God to serve us. We want God to be like us. We want God to bend himself to our human notions of justice and fairness. But we need, all of us, to have a, what's called a Copernican revolution. Now, some of you know that I collect bobbleheads. Um, I, I love bobbleheads of just historical figures and famous athletes that I admire. Um, and one of them that I have that is in, on my shelf is of Nicholas Copernicus. 
Nicholas Copernicus was a, was a Polish astronomer in the, six, in the 1500s, right around the time of the Renaissance and the Protestant Reformation. And he came up with this crazy idea that up to this point, all of humanity thought that the earth was the center of the universe and the sun rotated around the earth. But our boy Nick, I guess staring in the heavens for a long time, came up with his crazy, blasphemous idea that no, actually, I think that it's the other way around. The sun is the center of the universe and the earth and all of the planets rotate around it. Well, he was branded a heretic by the church at the time and just thought, people thought he was crazy. But come to find out, our boy Nicky was right. And that, that paradigm shift is referred to as the Copernican Revolution. By nature, we all think that everything rotates around us, when in reality, it's us rotating around God. And we have to confess that we need a kind of Copernican revolution to even understand this text. So let's work our way through it very quickly. And before we do, let me just give you two truths from Romans 9, 14 through 18 that from our human logic seem to be contradictory, but according to Paul's logic, inspired by the Holy Spirit, are not. Let me say that again. Let me give you two truths that I think are in these verses 14 through 18, that according to human logic seem to be contradictory, but according to Paul's, as he's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, are not. And it's these two truths. We got them up on the screen all at once. Truth number one is that salvation depends entirely upon the Lord. Salvation depends entirely upon the Lord. And truth number two is that man is responsible to repent and believe. Man is responsible to repent and believe. Let's look at, look at the text, verse 14. Paul says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. So what is Paul responding to in verse 14? He, he is responding to the dilemma, the tension that all of us feel when we read verses 10 through 13 about how God has chosen one over the other, not because of anything good in them. Again, as I said earlier, Paul seems to, rather than hedging on the severity of what he said in verses 10 through 13, seems to be doubling down on it, saying that God is free to do what he wants to do, and God is not responding to anything that exists in the person. That's not to say that God doesn't use faith. We'll talk about that. That's the means by which he brings a person to faith. But that faith doesn't exist in a person. That faith that God justifies us with is something that he gives a person when he saves them. And look at verse 15. He says, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So what is Paul quoting there? He's quoting Exodus chapter 33. Let's go to Exodus chapter 23, or 33. We'll have it on the screen. But I want you to get in the habit of when you see Paul quoting an Old Testament passage to actually go to that passage for yourself and read it and understand the context. So what's going on in Exodus chapter 33 that Paul would use that as a sort of backup for his point, a, an illustration of the point that he's making here. Well, what's going on in Exodus chapter 33 is Moses has received the law. He's given it to Israel. He's up on Mount Sinai. And while he is meeting with the Lord on Mount Sinai, 
basically to hear this instruction about how Israel is to worship God and God alone. The people are getting restless, and in Exodus chapter 32, they're starting to build golden calves for themselves. So they're worshiping other gods while Moses is meeting with God, receiving instruction to give to Israel about not worshiping other gods, right? So God is fed up with Israel, and Moses knows it. And so in Exodus chapter 33, starting in verse 12, Moses is pleading with God for him to spare his people because he knows that God is well within his rights, as if God needed our permission. God is well within his rights to obliterate Israel for their disobedience. And so verse 12, it says, Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I might know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. So Moses is pleading with God to be gracious. Verse 14, and he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. This is God speaking to Moses. And he said to him, and to Moses responding back, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? So he's saying, God, you need to do this. You need to go in front of us. You need to help us. You need to bring us out. Do for us what we cannot do for me and do for your people what we cannot do for ourselves. Verse 17, and the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. In verse 19, and this is, this is what Paul is quoting in, in Romans chapter 9. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And so God is saying to, Paul, uh, to, to Moses, He's saying, look, I'm going to use your prayers, and I'm going to be gracious, but let, let, lest you think that I'm responding to anything good in you or in Israel, let's just clear this up. I'm about to act, but I'm going to act, and I'm going to show mercy, not because I'm cooperating with anything that is worthy of cooperation in you. I'm going to have mercy simply because I'm going to have mercy and I'm going to have compassion simply because I'm going to have compassion. Yes, the Lord uses means, but I think those means are means that he gives. And so God here is, is, is establishing his free, unmerited mercy on Israel. And Paul, back in our text in Romans 9, is applying this characteristic of God's mercy and compassion, which is unearned and unresponded to anything in the creature, to us. That's what Paul is saying in Romans 9, verse 15. And then how does Paul conclude? What does he conclude about this in Romans 9, verse 16? So back to Romans 9. What does Paul then say about this scene that he references in Exodus 33? He says, so then it, 
depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So what does the it mean there in verse 16? What does it that he's referring to doesn't depend on human will or exertion? I think he means ultimately why God chooses, elects, saves one and not the other. So then it, in other words, the receiving of God's mercy depends. Friends, let's just stare at 16. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Now, friends, listen, I, I, I know my challenges here. I know this is the first Sunday after the first Saturday of football season. All right. I am, I've been doing this. This isn't my first rodeo. I've been doing this long enough. to. It's Labor Day weekend. You're probably a little angry that, you know, you're not on vacation somewhere and you're a little sleepy from staying up too late. I get that. And to some degree, I sympathize with you. I also know that many of us are sort of preconditioned to come to church to just kind of get a word to cheer us up so that we can kind of have a better, more functional, more pragmatic week. Because, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not dogging, I'm just, just kind of, just, so, so I'm just kind of, like Moses, just confessing for all of us, we don't really read our Bibles that much. Amen? And so when we come across a passage like this, we're like, man, it's Labor Day. I was up late last night. And now, I mean, come on, just give me a word to cheer me up so that I can have a better Thursday. And friends, that's not where the Bible takes us. Verse 16 is one of the most important sentences in the whole letter of Romans. He's saying that it, who God has mercy on, depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Figuring out, wrestling with, grappling with, trying to peel back whatever verse 16 is saying is absolutely central to your faith in Christ and the Scriptures. It is. It's for your good. What what does it mean that it depends not on human will? I think it means if we build upon the whole argument that Paul has been making in Romans is that salvation, like we've said, the two truths, salvation depends entirely upon the Lord. All the glory for anything good in us, for any spiritual knowledge that we have of the gospel, for any trust, for any faith, for anything that we have received from the Lord, for any right standing, for any justification, for any sanctification, for any forgiveness of sins, All of it, all the glory, all the credit depends, is there because of God and not because of anything we've done. Because the human will, listen to this, the human will is not free to save itself. It's not. That's the witness of, in fact, let's do this. Just put your thumb there or your little... Bible mark in Romans 9 and go to Romans 1. Let's just rehearse Paul's argument about the state of humanity. Romans 1, 
verse 18. This is a description of all of humanity, in particular Gentiles. Romans 1, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, and read that, so, so we are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were dark and claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. In other words, we as humans are all idolaters. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Friends, that's a stinging indict indictment of all of humanity. Go to Romans chapter 2. You're thinking, oh, well, there's a religious subset of people who God has sort of responded to. He's, he's sort of kept them as pure in some way. And so they're, maybe they're, no, even the Jews who were God's people, even though they had God's written word, were just as guilty. Romans 2, verse 4, or do you presume, he's speaking, I think, in particular to the Jewish people, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because, notice who bears the responsibility, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And then he summarizes, go to Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 9. This is, this is one of those texts that does not make it to t onto t-shirts. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged, charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, but that's a Pauline, that's a Paul way of saying all of humanity are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know, verse 19, that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So all of us, aren't you glad you came to church this morning? <laughs> but you see, you, don't, you can't understand this text until you understand the, the point Paul is making is that if it were up to human will to save itself, it couldn't save itself because the human will is not free. It is enslaved. In fact, he, he says that very same thing in Romans chapter 6. So go to Romans 6. He says in, in Romans 6, verse 17, but thanks, Romans 6, verse 17, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been 
set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. So he's, he's basically describing all humanity. He's saying, I do this so much, I get you guys make fun of me and stuff. There are only two types of people in the world. There are people, we're all slaves. We're either slaves to, we all have a master. We're either slaves to sin or we're slaves to Christ. That's Paul's point in Romans 6. We're not free agents who can sign with whatever team we think has the best benefits. Did you, did you, did you get that, what Paul's saying? We're slaves. Now, we, we, we do have a, a freedom of inclination. Let me explain it to you this way. Our hearts are free to do whatever they want to do in, a, in, a, in an inclination sort of way. God, God gives us, I think, a kind of freedom that he gives no other creature, right? But it's not an autonomous, outside-of-God freedom, right? We can, we're not free to do whatever we want to do. We are like prisoners who are in a dungeon prison cell. And think of that cell that we're in. I'm free to get up and go from one side of the cell to the other. I'm free to beat up on my prison mates. I'm free to be nice to my prison mates. I'm free to bang against the door. I'm free to take a nap. I'm free to eat or not eat. I'm free to do whatever I want to do within the confines of that cell which I am inclined to. But I, in my natural state as a human being, am not free to reach around and unlock the door and let myself out. Don't mistake the freedom of following our own heart's natural desire in its fallen state with a freedom to save ourselves. Do you see that philosophically? Something has to happen to us from the outside. A jailbreak has to happen, and that's the good news of the gospel. And the jailbreak comes by God not looking at something in us and saying, you know, I'll give you some time off for good behavior in the cell. No, the point that Paul is making is that the grace of the gospel that frees us from the prison comes entirely from outside of us. And God, when he saves a person, opens the prison door, makes them alive, gives them a new heart. It's called regeneration. He takes the dead heart, which was inclined to only disobey, and he gives us a new heart. And with that new heart, we now have the inclination and the ability to obey. So we get up, we trust in Jesus, we repent, we walk out of the cell. It's our own willing choice. But even that willing choice that we have is something that God gave us to us prior to, and that is his electing sovereign grace. I think that's what Paul is saying here. Because he's wanting to show us that God has not failed because God is not bound by reacting to anything in anything that he created. Psalm 115, verse 3, Our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. Now friends, this is true of our very own hearts. This is true of you and me. And why it's so important is because what's on the line is the glory of God in the saving of your soul and my soul if you're a believer. 
So let's keep going. Let's finish up 17 and 18 very quickly. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So, well, I'll read verse 18. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So he even doubles down even more. In, in verse 15, he used Moses as an example, positively, about how he's going to have mercy on his people. But now he's saying, but there's another side to this. Not only am I sovereign over who I give mercy over, I'm sovereign over everything. So verse 18, in 17 and 18, I'm going to show you this Old Testament picture again from Exodus of Pharaoh, where I'm even sovereign over Pharaoh's heart, which was hardened towards me. Now, friends, the, the, this is, this is the, these again are deep waters theologically. What does it mean that God has hardened Pharaoh's heart? Well, let's look at, let's look at, let's just go very quickly to Exodus again, back to the beginning of Exodus in Exodus chapter 4. And let's see the context here. The context is God is about to wrestle to free Israel from Egyptian captivity, and he raises up Moses to be the deliverer of his people, to speak truth to Pharaoh and to bring these plagues on the nation of Egypt so that Pharaoh, in the hardness of his heart, would be forced to do God's will and let his people go. And so in Exodus chapter 4, we see that the ultimate cause, the ultimate, the ultimate sovereign actor in all of this is God. Exodus 4 verse 18, Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see why they, whether they are still alive. So remember, Moses was born in Egypt. His mother put him in the little basket. He was rescued by Pharaoh's daughter. And then he leaves. He actually killed uh, an Egyptian, and he had to kind of be banished. And he, grows, he goes and finds a wife. And then he wants, he's got this burden. God calls him to go back to Egypt and to rescue his people. And now he's pleading with his father-in-law to let him go back. Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And from Exodus chapter 4, we won't take the time to read them all, but from Exodus chapter 4 to Exodus chapter 14, there are numerous plagues that God, through the hand of Moses, sends onto Pharaoh and the people of Egypt. And over and over and over again, we see this phrase that either God hardened Pharaoh's heart or Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And there's a kind of combination there. But what's important for us to see is that here at the beginning, God is saying, listen, I'm going to do this. I'm not going to react to anything in Pharaoh. And what's also important for us to realize is that Pharaoh's heart 
Even before this passage that we read in, in Exodus 4 about how God said, I will harden his heart, Pharaoh's heart was not a blank, neutral, innocent canvas. Pharaoh's heart, like every other heart, like all people that we just read in Romans chapter 1, 3, 6, and 8, is, is fallen, hardened. And God has given Pharaoh up to the decision that Pharaoh has made. And God has left Pharaoh in his state of hardness. And Paul's conclusion is that that's not only how God works in Pharaoh, but again, like he did with Moses, he takes this example of Pharaoh and he applies it to our hearts. Verse 18 so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Friends, th this is a difficult paragraph. Amen? You guys, you guys still getting over that close Auburn game? Or are you guys with me, or what, what's going on here? <laughs> this is a weighty truth. I, I understand that. And I think what this passage is saying as I said at the beginning, the two truths. Salvation depends entirely upon the Lord. Friends, God is free. He's unconstrained. He's not reacting to anything. He's not reacting to anything good in Israel. He's not reacting to anything good in you and me. And here's the good news of this. Turn this around because our natural inclination is to think of this negatively, to think of this truth negatively. He's also not blocked. He's also not hampered. He's also not constrained by any level of wickedness in us. <laughs> Turn this, isn't our natural inclination to think of how, how oh, this is, this is somehow unfair? Friends, that's not how the Bible portrays this. The, the Bible is clear that all of mankind is fallen. No one deserve, deserves mercy. The actual unfairness from a God-centered perspective is that he would save anybody at all. That's what Paul is saying here. The point of Romans is really the justification of God that God can still be righteous and save anybody because clearly human history tells us that nobody's good enough to be saved. And so Romans is all about defending the character and righteousness of God by showing how God can welcome any unworthy sinners to himself. And he does that by putting Jesus forward to bear the penalty that they should have borne. And yes, the Bible tells us that God saves some and not all. So our real objection, friends, our real objection is ultimately that God would create a creation that has fallen. And that he hasn't saved all. That's our real objection. That's it. And Paul takes that up in the next passage that we'll get to. And he's going to double down even more. And basically he's going to say, he's the potter and we're the clay. And he can do whatever he wants with his clay. I have this instinct to tidy this up and make it more palatable. I do. I do. I'm soft. I, I'm, I love you. I, I, want, I want you to understand. I, but all of that is a kind of, 
it's a kind of it's a kind of man-centered instinct in me. Paul is saying here that salvation depends entirely upon the Lord, and yet man is responsible. Pharaoh, you would not repent. Any sinner that doesn't trust in Christ, you receive what you deserve. Any sinner that comes to Jesus, you receive what you did not deserve, which is the mercy that God freely gave you, which should produce in us humility. So three applications quickly before we receive communion, and they are the exact same three that I mentioned last week, and I think it bears repeating This should produce in us humility in salvation. We didn't save ourselves. Salvation belongs to the Lord. We need a Copernican revolution. There's nothing good in me. Think think about that. I mean, don't take it out of the, 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 the theory of how God works here and apply it to your own life. Are you impressed with yourself? Does God owe you? Is that your natural instinct? And don't only apply it to your salvation, but apply it to every little second of your life. God owes you nothing. Everything that we receive is mercy. And he's promised to bring his people safely home. And we will endure, as Romans 8 says, tribulation in this world. But the trials that we face are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. And so what awaits us, even as we deal with difficulty in this life, is goodness and mercy which shall follow us all the days of our life forever. So this just, just this text shouldn't only just make me humble in my salvation, it should make me patient in my sanctification because I know that I deserve nothing but God has promised in Christ to eventually give me everything. Secondly, it should produce hope in evangelism. Friends, no one is too evil or too sinful to be saved. No one. Pharaoh refuses to obey God, but so did David. And God was gracious to him. Peter denies Jesus right after his crucifixion, but God was gracious to him. Paul drags off Christians to their death, but he was not too evil for God to save. And neither are you. Your sin is not more powerful than the free and unstoppable and unconstrained grace of God. Do you have ears to hear this? If you're hearing this, I think that is good evidence that God is awakening your soul to his unconstrained, free grace which can make your dead heart alive. You know what that sound that you're feeling? You know what you're feeling in your heart right now? You're feeling the jingling of the prison cell keys. The warden who is God is walking to the door and he's about to unlock it. That's what you're feeling.
doing right now. Your heart is pounding. Could it be me? You don't know me. What's going on is the keys of grace are jingling at the doorstep, the prison cell door of your life. Get up. Get up. Repent and believe and be free. And then finally, confidence in God. Man, I mean, he can be trusted. His word has not failed. It will not fail for me, man. This fight that I'm fighting right now, this sin that I'm battling, this attitude that is so persistent in my life, whatever it is that we're facing, whatever it is, he who the sun sets free is free indeed forever and ever and ever. We will have tribulation in this earth, but we are free. We are free. And he opens that door. And you know what the rest of the Christian life is? Sometimes us trying to get back in that prison. But Jesus won't let you back in because his word has not failed. He will perfect that which he started in you. So put that in your weak and feeble knees and lean forward into the, into the fight that is this life. Let's pray. Lord, it depends on you. It is not because of my will that I or anybody that has ever trusted in Christ is doing it, but it's because of your grace. Lord, we all wonder why you don't save all. But we humble ourselves and we know that you are able to save all and that you use the means of our lives to be the picture that draws unbelievers to yourself. So may we be humbled by this truth and instead of quibbling with you theologically, may we roll up our sleeves and be determined to live for you more obediently so that our lives can be used as part of your means to bring unbelievers to you. Lord, produce in us humility, produce in us hope, and produce in us confidence, I pray. You are a God who has compassion on who you have compassion and mercy on whom you have mercy. Make us all in this room like blind Bartimaeus crying out, Lord, have mercy on me. And as we come to this table, as believers, as followers of Jesus, as we come to this table, may that be our cry. Lord, afresh, have mercy on me. And make me more like Jesus today. And it's in his name I pray. Amen.